Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. The Beaverton is one of Canada's most renowned sources for satire about the news of the day. What began as a sharp website full of surreal, biting articles about national and world events has now spawned a weekly TV show whose second season airs on the Comedy Network, CTV, and Crave TV in Canada beginning November 1st. There's also a new book called The Beaverton Presents Glorious and or Free, The True... The True... True is actually struck through, so I don't... It's not actually true. It's the true... The history of Canada. The Beaverton presents Glorious and or Free, The History of Canada, which was co-authored by Alex Huntley and the Beaverton.com's creator and series showrunner, Luke Gordon Field. With season two of The Beaverton Upon Us, I individually met with Luke Gordon Field and the Beaverton's news anchors, Miguel Rivas and Emma Hunter, to discuss their professional and personal lives the second season of their show, and much more. Sponsored by FreshBooks, HelloFresh Canada, Pizza Trocadero, The Bookshelf, Planet Bean Coffee, and Granddad's Donuts, this is Luke, Emma, and Miguel of the Beaverton on the 361st episode of Creative Control with your host, me, Vish Khanna. Tonight on the Beaverton. Justin Trudeau is hard at work finishing his Ninja Turtle Valentines for all the lobbyists he like-likes. A study shows that cisgender men are the most likely to Google, what does cisgender mean? And in an annual tradition, the Super Bowl losers' brains were sent to Africa to help needy CTE researchers. Luke, thank you so much for being on my show. Thank you so much for having me, Vish. It's nice to have you here. Now, I uh, enjoy the Beaverton very much. Thank you. Uh, that means a lot. Are you enjoying it? Are you enjoying making it? <laughs> yes. <laughs> I, I enjoy reading it, watching it, and making it. I enjoy all of them. Yeah, there's, uh, a, there's a thing at the end of the episodes that says, uh, this show is based on a website. Yes. Which I think is uh, kind of hilarious. Talk about your involvement in the Beaverton generally. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, we are one of the few, uh, that's for sure. You don't normally see that. Um, so, yeah, it started as a website, and and uh, it was just kind of a, a loose collection of uh, 
of kids really looking back on it, but uh, of, of uh, comedians and uh, former journalists and board office workers who wanted to create something and, and, and just do something new and exciting and had all grown up as uh, fans of the onion and the daily show and, and all the other great satirical news out there uh, and wanted to make something of our own. And, and we just started doing it. We didn't have any backing or money or any really idea how to do it. Uh, we didn't even really know how to build a website, which is why our first <laughs> website looks as terrible as it did. Um, and we just kind of started writing and, and, you know, kind of built an audience. And uh, and then we had a, a couple things go kind of crazy viral and, and came to a, a somewhat of a bigger uh, attention of uh, some people. And uh, and then we uh, started pitching uh, this the TV show, which we are now uh, about to premiere our second season of. Well, so talk about those viral things. What exactly went viral? The first thing that ever went went viral around the world was um, when Chris Hadfield came back from his uh, his mission. Uh, and um, he had, of course, been YouTubing and, and tweeting and everything the whole time. So just at some point, we were just kind of riffing on the idea of like, well, what if he didn't have Wi-Fi up there? And what if this was all on his data plan? <laughs> So and Canadians being famously uh, overcharged for going over their data plans, it was just the headline was Chris Hadfield comes home to 1.37 million Rogers data plan or Rogers data bill, excuse me. Um, and uh, you know most people, especially in Canada, got the joke. The joke yeah. is that Rogers is a ridiculous and Bell. No, not to uh, give Bell a pass. Careful, but don't bite the hand. That, don't well, bite the hand that feeds you there. You're a enough. Bell guy, right? Yes, that's true. Uh, and we've never said a bad word about Bell. Don't go, don't look it up. Don't just believe me. We've never said a bad word. About them. Yeah. So we uh, so most people in Canada, I think, got the joke, but it spread abroad. And um, and because Chris Hadfield, being an international celebrity, had had, you know, tons of fans in in China and the United States. And, and it just kind of went viral all over the place. And um, the uh, specifically in China, where, you know, huh. I think um, not to say I know anything about what China, the Chinese comedy world is like, but I guess satirical news isn't as much of a thing there. Oh, I see. So it, the idea that a newspaper would lie to them. Um, was just a, a, an unheard of concept. And and so we got a lot of interview requests from Chinese newspapers and all the interview questions kind of boiled down to the same thing of like, why are you not in jail for lying to your people? And why is this allowed? <laughs> they don't understand satire. Well, I mean, again, I, I, I don't know because, right. you know, sure. the list of things I know less about than than, than Chinese comedy. But um, <laughs> it was the interviews we took and, and, you know, again, at this point we were just dumb kids who were like, yeah. you know, writing writing these jokes and we were like, Sure, we'll do an interview with this Chinese daily newspaper <laughs> based out of Hong Kong. Why not? And uh, just the fact that someone would want to interview us with us hilarious. So, you know, we took this interview, the, the main one I'm thinking of, and she was lovely and, 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 and uh, uh, very interesting, uh, but just didn't understand. When we just said, well, it was, it was satire, and, and that word just had no meaning to her. Right. And uh, when we explained satire, even then it didn't really seem to have any kind of meaning to her because – as she put it to us, um, you know, in, in China, uh, newspapers and, and journalism are seen as kind of sacrosanct. So the idea that you would uh, use the, the medium of journalism to lie to people, even for comedy, is is seen to her seemed offensive. I Interesting. Guess. That's fascinating. Yeah. So they take everything quite literally and seriously, it seems. It, that was the impression I got. Yeah. Right. So your comedic background, like you mentioned The Onion, you mentioned The Daily Show. What is your comedic background? Yeah, so I um, started doing stand-up uh, about a couple months before I started writing for the Beavertons. This would have been back in 2011, late 2011, early 2012. Um, so I'd always been uh, a writer. I used to like you know write 
humor columns for student newspapers and stuff when I was in school and everything. Um, but as I was leaving school, and I realized at the time I was uh, just graduating law school and I was kind of realizing that maybe long term being a lawyer wasn't for me. Um, so I was just looking for as many creative outlets as possible. So I started doing stand up comedy and writing for the Beaverton as well as writing, you know, humor columns for uh, a lot of websites that no longer exist as well as a couple that still do, uh, mm -hmm. like Split Sider. Um, and uh, would just kind of uh, write as, as widely as possible and just kind of was trying to write and, you know, kind of have my fingers in as many pots as possible and, and go about it that way. So you were saying The Daily Show and The Onion. What about stand-up? Who got you into stand-up? Who, who are your, who are, I don't want to say who are your guys. Yeah, yeah. Are, well, no, <laughs> who are your people? I, well, yeah, I'll, I'll challenge the, uh, the basis of your question by starting with Maria Bamford, who <laughs> um, is someone who I think is 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 rightly being recognized now as the genius she uh, is. Yeah. Uh, at the time, she had put out a couple albums, and she had done the Comedians of Comedy tour with Pat Oswalt, um, which is where I discovered her. Um, and her album "Unwanted Thought Syndrome" is one of the funniest things I think that's ever been. Yeah, done. absolutely. It's She's amazing. A genius. Yes. Yeah. Um, so she is one of my all timers. Um, uh, you know, I, I, it's an awkward position because of, I think the rumors that are swirling about him, which, uh, right. are, are very unfortunate, but Louis CK at the sure. time was my favorite, uh, stand-up comic. Um, and, uh, you know, I would, uh, kind of his, uh, specials chewed up and, and hilarious and shameless were, you know, unbelievably funny and, and were, were the kind of, were, they were great because they were for the comedy nerds and for the non-comedy nerds. So you could watch them with your, your friends who obsessed over comedy and like, you know, knew every George Carlin quote and every Richard Pryor, Pryor joke. Uh, but you could also watch them with your friend who's never seen stand up sure. before, never been to a show. Yeah. Uh, and he, so he had a great crossover effect. Um, and uh, another one, and, and I just mentioned him, but uh, Patton Oswalt was uh, one of my all-timers as well. Absolutely for me, too. Werewolves and Lollipops, one of the greatest comedy albums I've Unbelievable. ever Unbelievable. That just, KFC just joke never, still it's works. It's just unbelievable. Yeah. It's just overpowering. I brought it on. Uh, I used to road manage bands every once in a while, and I would bring comedy records with me. And the, every time we went to someone other than that Patton Oswalt record, they'd be like, put the Patton Oswalt back on. They'd never heard of him. It was mind-blowingly great. So you mentioned a, a series of absurdist comics, I think, mostly, mm. like people who go for the surreal. You mentioned, again, some of the satire you're into. Is that your deal? Are you into more of like the left field, left of center kind of comedy? What's interesting is I think my own comedy isn't that at all. And the satire I write isn't uh, absurdist or uh, or left field. Um, so my, my stand-up is very personal and grounded in, in my own life and, and I think a lot of the satire I write is very clearly political and and and, and charged uh, and um, I'm much more uh, strident than some uh, than some satire writers but I think as a fan of comedy that's what I always love the most because right. you know I, I, I always liked there's something when you're in comedy there's something wonderful about seeing a comic who doesn't make you think I wish I'd thought of that yeah. because they're so unique and different that you realize you could never have written that joke. You, you know, I could never write a Maria Bamford joke because our our our, our personal lives, our personalities, our, our outlook on the world are so different. She's but very I, idiosyncratic as well. Yes. Uh, and the, most of the comedians you mentioned have their own specific lane and zone. 
Yes, and once you you know listen to two or three of their albums, you see you do see patterns, and you do see like yeah. Pat Oswald, especially um, who just released this um, you know amazing special and Annihilation. Annihilation. Yeah, um, you know you certainly see his his patterns, and he's very open about the fact that a lot of his comedy is I used to think this, now I think this, mm-hmm. uh, and that is most uh, if not ninety percent of his jokes are based on the premise that like I used to think this, or I used to believe this, or I used to do this, and now I think, believe, or do this. You uh, grow up in Sterling, Virginia. You have a certain worldview, and then you get out in the world the whole world comes to you and you're like oh I didn't even know this existed like a yeah. whole other universe yeah. absolutely but what's so amazing about that is even though you, you see the pattern even though like with The Onion and, and Jon Stewart they would you know they had their own patterns and, and, and ways of attacking things and making jokes about yep. things so if you watch Jon Stewart night after night of course you see what he's doing and you, and you see you know behind the curtain a little bit but with the great ones, um, the best thing is, even though you've seen behind the curtain, it doesn't diminish the show. Yes. It just makes you ex- experience it in a more uh, universal way. Yeah. No, I agree. I want to I talk to you about the state of satire during this very strange time. Yes. In- what do you mean? No. <laughs> I, I talk a lot with comedians about the efficacy of satire mm-hmm. at, at this point in time when you have so many jokes running things uh if you will and we'll talk about that in a moment but i want to go back to the advent of the beaverton because you mentioned some of the 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 satiric programs that inspired you Mm -hmm. what was going on in canada so i mean you must have thought you were filling a void when you came up with the beaverton i would think what was happening in canada at the time that you conceived of this thing what was missing from canadian satire at the time can you talk about that yeah absolutely i mean i think the the fundamental thing that was missing for us uh, when we started the website was was the lack of a uh, of a satirical online voice. I mean, hmm. there were there were satirical TV shows in Canada, but I think those are primarily the CBC shows Mercer and Twenty Two. They're primarily aimed at an older audience, and they they often not always, but came at things from the perspective of when they were talking to politicians or talking about politicians. It was very much from the perspective of like, well, at the end of the day, we're all on the same side and same team, and we joke and you make laws, but yeah. we're all good guys, and 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 at the end of the day, we can put our arms around each other and. and and have a beer and, and, and everything like that. And that's a, a perfectly valid way to look at the world. And I think for much of Canadian history, that was fair. I do think things changed a little bit under the Harper years where it didn't feel like, like we were on right. the same side. And, and, and there was an undercurrent of anger that I felt, and I think a lot of people felt, about some of the things he was doing, particularly towards the later half of his term. Uh, and we wanted comedy that was a bit more uh, angry and a, little more, a bit more biting and sharper and would, would call things out as we saw them and not be afraid to say you know, this is bad and uh, we're going to find a funny way to point that out. But at the end of the day, no, we're not going to put our arms around you and go, you know, watch your band perform, Steve. Uh, you know, we're going to we're going to call you on your, uh, uh, you know, insert swear word here. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. that was uh, that was, I think, a lot of the the motivating factor from a uh, political uh, and, and comedy perspective and especially from a comedy perspective is is, you know, just wanting to create something for ourselves um, because there was not a ton of opportunity for young comedians. Um, and, there, and, and you know, one of the things we're most proud of with the show is how many young comedians we've gotten to hire as writers and, and as performers. Uh, because, yeah, there was a bit of a stagnation for a while there where, you know, there were comedy shows, but n- most of them weren't in Toronto. Um, mm-hmm. Most of them were filming out east. And there was such a well of talent here, both in writing and performing and in both. And we wanted to tap into that and, yeah. and show the incredible reservoir of talent that the Toronto comedy scene has. Right. So so this, I think you've transitioned maybe from the website to the TV show a little bit there. Mm. 
Can you expand upon that? You start with the website. You get a little virility, if yes. that's a word. <laughs> you, you start I think to... all internet slang isn't a word, so it's, it all doesn't matter You anymore. go a little viral. Things start to pick up. Uh, now, at some point, you get... Uh, Someone wants to talk to you from, I guess, Bell, CTV, right? Is that what happened? Well, yeah. I mean, it, it was basically a, a comedy writer named Jeff Detsky um, uh, started seeing, started following us. And he also noticed that our articles were kind of reaching out beyond the comedy community. And, and, and he noticed uh, from afar that we were having this kind of reach that we were seeing as well. Uh, so he basically just emailed me hmm. um, and asked if we'd ever thought of turning into a show. And I said... Uh, well, yes, but we thought we were kind of a few years away from that. And he wrote back like, no, I think the time is now. Oh, wow. And so we kind of spent months just meeting up at uh, coffee shops and bars and, and his living room and just kind of jamming out ideas. Uh, and um, and he had a relationship with people at, at, at Bell Media. So we talked about, you know, just kind of producing it internally, which was kind of in vogue three or four years ago that um, mm-hmm. that uh, networks would produce internally. Um, but then we ended up, uh, they were like, no, we want to work with a production company. So we ended up going with Pure 21, who's an amazing production company that Laszlo Barna, formerly uh, the president of E1 Canada, ha- had set up. Um, and we pitched them the idea. They they loved it and kind of bought it in the room. Uh, and then we went around and, and, and met with Bell Media and kind of the exact same thing happened. So we went from you know, in a matter of months going from like, well, who would want to ever do a TV show again? We're just some kids who meet at a bar yeah, and, and yeah. eat chicken wings and write jokes uh, to, you know, being kind of in the room, being told by Bell Media, like, yeah, let's let's uh, let's develop this. This wow. is great. That's amazing. So, yeah, it was amazing. And, and I think, you know, not to speak for the people at, at Bell Media, but from conversations we've had with them since then, and, and you know, that was years ago because TV development is such a long process, yeah. um, is they were kind of waiting for something like this. Like, because, you know, they've had such success with, with Jon Stewart and Colbert and now Samantha Bee. Um, they syndicate, that, or rather, they don't syndicate, but they, they bought the licenses yes. to broadcast Yeah, they're the Canadian home yeah. for those shows. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah. and even though they, don't, they didn't create them themselves, they're kind of the landmark Comedy Network shows is, is yeah. John Stewart and, and when he was on the air, Colbert. Yeah. Um, and now it's uh, Sam B as well. Um, so I think they'd wanted a Canadian version of that for, for quite some time. And, right. and they knew this wasn't going to be literally The Daily Show Canada. And, and it had to be different and had to be its own thing. But they wanted a, a biting Canadian satire show that they could, they could pair with those shows that they've, they've become known for. The, one of the fascinating things about most of these like, late-night satire shows yeah. is that they go after politicians. They go after the news of the day. But they're often framed as media, as mainstream media. They're framed as uh, anchors at a desk. You've got these amazing performers, Miguel and Emma, mm-hmm. and you're basically doing a news show. Why do you think that's a thing? Why do you think I, – I think satire is a, uh, has a lot to do with scrutinizing information right. and and kind of addressing the fact that so many of us mistrust the information we're given. So I think that's why everyone's using, you know, news anchors. Like the people you're supposed to trust are crazy and they're saying ridiculous things. Was there ever a point where you thought, let's not do like a news show, let's do some other format? I mean, or or within that, why do a news show to make fun of the news and, and, and and politics, I guess? I do think you hit it on the head with with you know there's still uh, especially in Canada um there's still a a kind of respect and a uh, adoration for the nightly news and for you know uh CTV evening news with Lloyd Robertson or the National with Peter Mansbridge they still have that 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 high place that is so fun to satirize and yeah. to kind of pull down into the muck with the rest of us so there's a lot of comedy that comes from that 
And certainly coming from being a satirical news website where we use the format of a, a daily newspaper to satirize the world around us, it only made sense when we were transitioning to a, uh, a visual medium that we would use that the visual medium equivalent of a, of yeah. a daily newspaper, a daily uh, news broadcast, uh, to, to tell our jokes. Uh, but also, you know, once you get beyond us and you look wider, I think the reason there are so many of these shows now is in addition to just the fact that it worked once, so why not keep making as <laughs> yeah. many of them as there can, which is the same reason there's 20 versions of The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson on the air right now is because people are like, well, it worked once. Let's yeah, do more of it. Let's just see which one takes. Uh, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So, you know, the fact that Jon Stewart was was so brilliant for so long, people were like, oh, okay, it's a it's a satirical news show. Put him at a desk and ha- have him kind of come in as if he's a news anchor, and then he'll it'll be different. Yes. Um, so, you know, certainly there is an element of like, well, we know audiences like this, so let's not change script too much. Um, one thing we really liked with uh, having two anchors as opposed to one um, is we, we really liked the, the banter back and forth, which you don't see much anymore. Uh, we really liked having uh, a yin and a yang and, and a straight person and a crazy person, yes. which is a common trope in, in sketch comedy but hadn't been done as much in satirical news. That's true. Uh, so we wanted to add that flavor to make it kind of distinct in our own thing. Yeah. Um, so that was you know certainly not a complete change of, of the format that had been established today, but we thought would, uh, would create a unique space for us to, to operate and to have to be able to tell jokes that are different than all the other satirical news show out there. Well, you're doing an amazing job with it, and I know, unfortunately, our time is tight, and you've got a split. I just want to get a sense from you about uh, the, this upcoming season. Mm-hmm. You've obviously, I assume, uh, season one was a lot of experimentation. Uh, yeah. A bunch of you hadn't done anything like this before. <laughs> what kinds of things have you learned from that experience? What kind of things are you going to apply to season two to make it uh, whatever, better, I suppose, if you yeah. can? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you, you're you're right uh, again that experimentation was the right word, and uh, we, the one thing I'm still so proud of in season one, in addition to our successes, that is, you know, the only thing I love more than our successes were our glorious failures, which is, you know, we tried some things, especially in the studio, which we were like, and you know, they were so funny, and we were like, these are great, and then you know, you look at them and you're like, oh, okay, maybe not. Um, you do a risky thing where you film it before an audience. Yes, and I mean, lots of new shows do it, but. Uh, it's fascinating because the audience reaction is, is sort of distant, I find, in the mm. way it was, it w- the way the show is mixed. And so things that I think are amazing, you hear this, you hear this laughter, but it's sort of quiet. And I think that's fascinating. Well, yeah, that was um, not to get too much into the production <laughs> di- technical side of things, which, you know, I'm sure audiences love hearing about all the time, uh, was, you know, our studio space last year wasn't ideal. Right. Uh, we were, you know, I mean, it was it was the best we could get at the time. This year, we're shooting in a much more uh, modern facility at the CTV studios in, in agent court. So that will hopefully feel okay. a little bit more uh, connected, the, <laughs> yeah, sure. the live audience. I know a lot of, you know, we kind of made the choice. And again, it was looking back, a glorious failure. But we kind of made the choice of like, we don't want to show the audience. We want to just get yeah. in and, and yeah. do our jokes. Um, and, uh, and, you know, like uh, I'm a huge fan of Last Week Tonight with John Oliver. And, and they don't show the audience. They just get in there and they go. Yeah. Um, so we really liked that. But it did lead to uh, a fair number of people online, just a few thousand, who were uh, writing in and, and, and accusing us of using a laugh track. And yeah. we were like, no, 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 it's a live audience. They were like, sure. We were like, it is a live audience. They were like, we don't believe you. There's so, nothing we could do. It's hard to draw people to come to a taping, isn't it? It's it can be difficult even if your show's a hit. It's just hard to get people to come and watch you do a show. Yeah, I mean it's it, it is one of those things where it's it's you say it and people are like yeah absolutely and then it's like okay well it's at this address at this time and they're like oh uh, yeah, yeah 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 I got things yeah I mean having done stand up comedy for five years six years now 
Uh, I do. I mean, the draw of getting people out to a show, whether it's a live band, a live stand-up show, a TV yeah. taping, whatever it is, it's always going to be one of those things that everyone's mom's birthday is, yeah, is yeah, the yeah, night totally. of the show. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> you know, the, the, we, we do have a, uh, some spots seats available for our tapings this year, although I think the first few are, are actually already sold out, which is oh, great. Okay. Wow. Um, uh, but if people want to come check out a taping, I highly encourage them to, uh, to book now because they are kind of going fast. Oh, good for you. That's uh, great. Yeah, but um, so anyway, so the... The biggest thing we we wanted to change, um, you know, beyond the production logistics of making the audience feel more present, uh, as you just uh, uh, discussed, uh, was I think what we were a little bit worried about in season one was not wanting to be too biting and satirical and dark for 22 minutes at a time. Mm -hmm. It was about finding that balance between what's something that's really going to drive our point home and then let's maybe the next piece, let's be a little lighter and do something a little bit more, not goofy, but just a little bit more something that's going to make you laugh out loud as opposed to like think. It's so many jokes. Like yes. it's very, it's very commendable. Like I can't get over how many jokes are in each episode between the banter between Miguel and Emma and the news stories and then the little interstitial things. It's remarkable. Yeah. Uh, thank you so much. Yeah. yeah. So it was it was a real like you said, like we're we're a show that every week, I mean, forget about like the individual stories, just in terms of like the headlines and the throws and the banter, like yeah, it's it's we we and and the fact that we probably write four to five times as many as we use. Yeah, yeah. we're writing hundreds of jokes yeah. every week to to just to fill the the kind of externals around the bigger stories we file. Right. So yeah, it's joke dense. That's for sure. So yeah. if you like if you like hard jokes, like uh, not to, not to be like this is the show for you, but this is the show for you if you like hard jokes. Um, and I think this year, like we're we're certainly maintaining our our joke uh, per page quota, but we're also uh, I think going even more biting and and satirical and and sharp than we did last year. I think oh, wow. we're. Um, you know, in in kind of close uh, conversation with our, our our comedy execs, the stuff that that traveled the widest online and 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 really got people talking the most last year was the stuff that was top topical for sure, but also just really went for it. And so I think this year, uh, even more than last year, uh, we're we're going for it, and and we're not shying away from from subject matters that aren't traditional sources of comedy and, and from stories that quote unquote aren't funny on the page, but we're going to make them funny and we're going to talk about them because they're stories that, you know, need to be discussed. Luke, I thank you so much for this. And uh, for more information about the Beaverton, where can people go? You can check us out at thebeaverton.com or follow us on your social media of choice. Um, and uh, our TV show premieres uh, November 1st at 10 p.m. on Comedy. So check us out there, most of all. All right. Well, I really, really appreciate this time. Thank you for this, and best of luck with everything. Thank you so much for having me. The Toronto Police Service is bringing accountability into the 21st century by equipping its frontline officers with body cameras. The cameras will come with 12-hour battery life, 4K resolution, and a full suite of easy-to-use self-editing software. A TPS press release stated, these cameras will create the feeling of trust and accountability while giving our constables the opportunity to delete the boring stuff, like admissible evidence. In addition to the full editing suite, the camera boasts a wide array of fun filters that can give a perpetrator googly eyes or a gun in their hand. Emma, thank you for being on the show. Thank you for having me. It's nice to have you. It's wonderful to be here. I'm a fan of your work on the Beaverton. Oh, exceptional. That's better than the alternative. <laughs> you know who was just here was Luke. Ah, Luke. Your friend Luke, he was just here and he left. 
Yeah. You know, he's a real drag. The problem with the Beaverton is Luke. I don't know if he mentioned that, but yeah, he's the uh, he's the downside. Yin and yang. No, he, did, he didn't seem like a bad person to me. Oh, he, he, he is. Was, is he really bad? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm surprised his parole officer isn't here right now. Yeah. So tell me about your involvement in this show. I mean, I, I watched you on the show. Your interplay with Miguel is hilarious. Uh, how did you get involved in the in the Beaverton? I wish it was more of a romantic tale of they saw me and needed me, but it was actually sort of a way less uh, sort of self-interested. They held auditions. Uh-huh. I showed up with a headshot and crossed my fingers like the rest of Toronto right. and BC and wherever else they got oh, did they do a full from. Search? I think they did a full cross-Canada search. <laughs> um, and it was like a very sort of stereotypical, a number of chemistry tests and callbacks and, um, you know, just trying not to pee yourself or or forget or blank and um yeah after a sort of a sea of very intense chemistry tests and reads um i got the call and it was the best because i was a huge fan of their um online presence and now that there was going to be a tv show it was really exciting what about what was it about their online presence that appealed to you because i I was talking to luke about this about uh, the the vacuum maybe the void they thought they were trying to fill in terms of satire in canada did you feel that did you feel like there wasn't something like the beaverton yeah i have to say and i don't know how you feel about this but i did feel a bit like we had these very pleasant polite um, satirical news shows yeah. that are very important and definitely fill an important voice in the Canadian comedic landscape. Right. But that there was a place for something a little more brash and um, edgy, which sounds so unedgy, doesn't it, to say that? But edgy and um, sort of unapologetically strong. And I think that's where the Beaverton had a place and a voice and what started at this sort of alt side of everything became a little bit more mainstream and then people started to notice and then tv network started to notice and here we are so obviously what i was feeling what i think a lot of um maybe younger canadians were feeling is like come on like let's put on our big boy pants let's let's get a little let's like (laughs) let's ruffle some feathers out there we can take it are you you're you're canadian i'm canadian yeah born and raised in canada yeah do you think we have problems addressing our anger do you think we have problems actually uh, conveying real, you know, rancor? Yeah, I think we have. Um, I think. Well, let me. Think We're general. I'm. Gen- I'm asking you to generalize about an entire country and right. its people. I'm happy to do it. I'm the guy for the job. <laughs> um, well, my parents are immigrants, so I'm first generation Canadian, Same here, which yeah. is a cool place to be in always because you sort of have your toe in both ponds, so to speak. And I think. Um, I think that we're not that angry as a whole. I think we're pretty uh, excited about ourselves, especially now. Yeah. But that, one of our greatest strengths is how self-aware we are. I mean, yeah. we are really critical of our leaders. We always have. And we're in this funny place now where we're like, look at us, nailing it. But for most of our life, we're like, oh, <laughs> Stephen Harper, oh, my God. Like, we're sort of, yeah. we're all, you know, in, in sort of... Unlike the U.S., I love my president. You very rarely hear a Canadian sort of speak passionately about... It's like, they're fine. Par- yeah. I get it. They're you fine. Know, well, what's it, the big deal? It's fine. They're going to screw it up. Or, I, you know, I got problems with what they did in the last bill or, or things like that. We're sort of really good at that. So why, when it comes to comedy, were we playing it so safe yeah. always? Like, yeah. come on. So I think uh, it's a great 
opportunity for us as a country, for a lot of Canadian comics, and for us politically. Like, we're, let's do it. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So what's your background uh, in terms of comedy, acting? Because you got to do b- b- both. You're, you're acting as right. this strange character, I have to say, <laughs> on your what show. What is going on? I know. <laughs> and, uh, and, and it's very funny. Oh, what, what is your background as a performer? Um, well, I trained uh, as a classical theater performer. I did really? Shakespeare rep. Yeah. Wow. For my first sort of three years outside of school, I played Juliet and uh, Isabella and Measure for Measure, the pious nun. Uh, ha ha. Huh? And uh, <laughs> now ha ha. And um, it was wonderful training. Sure. Exceptional training because the language obviously isn't a common currency for comedic moments because sometimes people don't know what you're saying. Mm-hmm. So it allowed this very important, honestly, just learning how to memorize things properly, you know, unapologetically memorize it yeah. to its fullest, which is, I think, sometimes underrated. I think so. Uh, knowing what the hell you're going to say in the moment when you're nervous. <laughs> yes. Um, so it was great for that, for live performance, and just for learning how to find the comedic moments when it isn't um, obvious, which is, I think, a thing that can be really useful. So you were drawn to act because... Um, I think my mother did community theater, you know, uh-huh. Gilbert Sullivan and all that, you know, in church basements in Etobicoke. So I spent a lot of my childhood in um, cigarette-filled church basements with people in That's corsets. how you want your church basement, by the way. You she would die if smoky, she knew I was yeah. saying that, but let's just call it for what it was. <laughs> cigarette-filled, yeah, and, smoke-filled uh, church you know, basements. Yeah, yeah which, was, which ruled. Yeah. It just ruled. And yeah. uh, my first Shakespeare that I saw was she played Viola in Twelfth Night, and she was wonderful. And um, from from there, I went to Queens and studied it properly and Ibsen and all that. And then from there, came to Toronto and promptly got no work at all and knew that there was something, there's got to be a back door into this whole thing. Yeah. And the back door, I think, is the basement of bars, those little stages in Comedy Bar and Bad Dog and even the back of the Rivoli where you can kind of figure out what you do well and what you do badly. Yeah. And, um, and that's when I, we formed this sketch troupe called She Said What, which was five women. We all went to the same school, and we were all trying to do the same thing, and all were having zero luck. Mm. So we got some writing chops and characters, and from there came um, sketch, and then I did a little bit of sort of character stand-up on my own, which arguably might not have been very good, but I did it, and it happened. And um, and then, and yeah, and that sort of allowed at least a, a niche to be associated with the actor. So when you go in the door, they're like, oh, this chick does comedy, not just here's another brunette who's five foot two. Yeah. What is this person? So it helped, I think. Well, you say you, you, it sounds like you got into comedy for survival. Yes. Basically, for Absolutely. looking for work. Yes. So, but, but then you started writing your own comedy? Yeah. So um, around 2000 and. 10, I guess, I started putting together a set, which hopefully was going to be a just for laugh set. Like, who wow. am I? Yeah. But why not? Right. And um, I didn't really, for whatever reason, want to do the style of stand up where you just air your shit, so to speak, or yeah. talk about your personal life. stuff. Yeah. I yeah. just, it just didn't, I don't know. It felt like too much of a plunge too quickly. So I sort of hid behind characters and impressions, which sounds so lame even saying it, but that's what I did. Who did you do? Um, I mean, everybody. I did Celine. Like, how timely. That's, like, super been done. But I didn't know what I was doing. I did Julie Louis-Dreyfus and Paula Dean. I did um, Pitbull. Um, you did Pitbull? Yeah. You took a bit of a left turn there. You were like, Julie Louis-Dreyfus yeah. and then well, I just tried Pitbull. To do all of a sudden. Yeah, Pitbull. I mean, he's funny. And, he's very um, funny. Like, what a disaster. And so 
and so yeah, and so it was just this way to like get eight minutes really quickly, so that if you know SNL or a sketch show in Canada or anybody was watching, it was a really quick eight minutes of right. oh this girl can do this as like a party trick. So you're acting. I mean, that's for impressionists, I think the acting background is huge. Is that fair? Or yeah, was, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I think everything is commitment. That's right. what I think. I think comedy is commitment and acting is commitment. That's the secret to all the everything working or feeling good or timing. I think that is right. your saving grace if you don't know what to do. So back to so the survival instinct kicks in. You, you, you get into comedy. Who do you look up to as uh, like I mean, Shakespeare, there's some funny stuff in Shakespeare. Really funny stuff. Very funny stuff. Yeah. But uh, do you have stand-up comedians you look up to, uh, uh, sit, uh, sketch shows. You mentioned SNL. Yeah, I think all that stuff. I think there's that period where a lot of, especially young Canadians and kids of immigrants watch Saturday Night Live, and it feels like this thing that's really far away and really sexy. And, yeah. um, you know, Molly Shannon, Sherry O'Terry, I grew up with that yep. crew. and they, Mid-90s. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And, um, and they were just desperately funny and um, brave, and everybody took them seriously. And I, I felt... Um, which is great as a woman, that there was definitely a place for me, that it wasn't impossible that I could do it because they can do it. So right. I never had really that ceiling of, but what does it look like for me? Like, it looks like that. It looks like Molly Shannon following, falling into a pile of drums. Right. Remember that? You know, so it was there. I Mary could see Catherine it. I could Gallagher? Mary Catherine Gallagher, yeah. exactly. Yeah. And Queens was really formative, too, in terms of allowing a space for... Queens doesn't have a reputation, I don't think, for being a loose, funny school. It's like a, it's like Canada's Ivy League school on yeah, some level. Yeah, it definitely doesn't have, like, a black leotard cigarettes figuring out who you are <laughs> feel. Right. But I'll tell you, it does, and it was me, <laughs> it was and I had a crew, and we wore black leotards and smoked Belmonts and just, you know, felt the beat, man. Were you hanging out at the grad club and doing yeah, stuff? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, Nice yeah. room there. I like that it's a place. nice room, yeah, right? It sort yeah. of smells like mold, but instead of an a good way. I liked. I used to play there in bands no all the time. Way. I used to love playing there. Yeah, I, I enjoyed it. Virginia, yeah. did you know Virginia there? She used to run the. No, I think uh, I'm a lot really, younger than you. Oh, really? <laughs> no. Well, come on. I think we're the same <laughs> age. Yeah. I think so. Anyway, <laughs> Queens is good, and it's good that you found uh, yeah. yourself there. So you audition. Uh, you get into the Beaverton world. What's that like for you? What's it like to go from? Uh, you know, being a fan of the site to actually acting in this show that was kind of this invention. I think it was. For me, what was most important, and I'm not sure how Miguel approached it, but for me, I thought that this thing has existed before me in the same way a play has existed before me in the same way that if you, um, you know, come into a sketch after someone else has written it, like there was, I'm really comfortable with that, with yeah. the thing being established before me and wanting to honor what these people created. And so I knew from the tone of the website and the way they wrote their articles that this was not a place for sort of large, goofy stuff, and for me felt like the straighter and smaller, the better the comedy will play. Mm -hmm. And I think if you look at um, Air Farce, which is a great show, 22 Minutes, they're a little bigger and broader, and so so that box has been ticked. Whereas with The Beaverton, there was space for this other thing, Um, smaller, more direct, like The Onion, that style and and I think it worked and I think that's why I was lucky in the audition that maybe they thought I kind of understood the voice they were trying to have right so you mm-hmm. you say it's something that is already established and you're stepping into it which is true on one level but on another you're creating this version of a character 
I think. Oh yeah, no. When I went, once I got the job, I became. I was. Uh, we're having a complete overhaul of this piece of shit you call the Beaver Tent. It's going to be me, all me, uh, Emma Hunter's show, and I, I've got people fired. I uh-huh. threw fits. Yeah. I basically Jennifer Lopez, right. the Beaver Tent. I'm picking up on that vibe. Yeah. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Move out of my way. You know who? Do you know who I am? That sort of thing. Um, I mean, what, what Luke was saying was, interestingly, because I was asking him about the fact, again, before he was hauled back to prison, Luke was telling me about <laughs> the fact that, you know, one of the, the signatures of your show is that you have these two hosts that are not on the same page. One seems to be a straight person who, not, you know what I mean. Yes, yes, uh, yes. He seems to, he, in this case, seems to be like, I'm just going to read the news. I don't really have a lot of... I'm not going to extemporize. I'm not going to offer my little opinion about stuff. Whereas Emma, uh, occasionally we get a, a dark window into Emma's soul. And you're just like, what is happening with Emma? So he was saying, uh, Luke, that uh, you know this was interesting to have this tension between the hosts. Because often if there's two hosts, they're both kind of playing it straight. Right. So talk about that. Can you talk about that yeah, dynamic? Yeah, absolutely. No, I think that... The dynamic is really important, obviously, because it's us at a desk for 80% of the show. So Mm -hmm. if that doesn't work, there'll be a staleness and people will change the channel. So we knew that that was important. And there's a lot going on right now, and there's a lot going on in terms of comedy and male-female dynamics and gender and all that stuff. And the Beaverton is a cool, positive space that is interested in being funny, but also being on the right side of history and acknowledging exactly where we are. Mm -hmm. So I think that um, if you take the... Uh, Jane, you ignorant slut from SNL yes. back in the day. Dan Aykroyd, where, Jane Curtin, yeah. Right, where there is this dynamic where the guy, usually the girl sets up the guy's jokes. Um, the woman wants to keep it straight and keep things moving, and the guy is goofy and you know falls off the wagon, and we don't know where he's at. Like and the I, Anchorman thing that happened yeah, with that movie? which yeah. is fine, and yeah. it's a great thing and it exists and those shows are funny and those characters are awesome and we weren't trying to do the opposite or really thinking about it that much it just sort of happened yeah that this dynamic got created and miguel is a very cool um wonderfully giving performer i think he's brilliant in his own right and he can do anything he can do any character he's got like a sea of voices that he does he's just a really smart positive performer and very comfortable in his own skin so whatever happened with the writing and the way this thing sort of unfolded the dynamic was such that miguel played straighter and um i played just w- weird which i love yeah where where's emma's like you know i know you because you're uh, you, you have this theatrical background i assume you really want to know I, and i maybe i'm suggesting your method or something but i, I imagine you really want to get into the character where yeah. they're from where they're coming from what's your take on emma uh, the 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 beaverton emma what where is she from what is her perspective right and that's a great point that the name is my name yeah that's a weird that was thing. something to sort of navigate like are you comfortable like now i have a baby i have a son uh-huh. so are you comfortable portraying yourself with your own name as this you know a problematic person yes. with potentially you know undertones of mental health issues <laughs> is that something you're willing to do to which i said yeah Let's do it. Because what the hell else am I doing? You know Is what I there mean? a precedent for that? Like When I think of that, uh, when you mentioned that, I think of Tim Heidecker. I think of Tim Heidecker. I love Tim Heidecker. I'm yes. a huge fan. Yeah, so I, Tim, Tim and Eric are my, I love them. Tim was on the show talking about a rock record he made. And all the feedback I got was, it was so weird to hear him because it was just him talking about music. 
Okay. Initially. And and then subsequently he's been on the show, I think, a couple more times in character. And him and Greg Turkington were doing a bit <laughs> where I had to be in between them oh in the On Cinema universe. And it was a oh, bit. I'm freaking out. Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. So, so Greg was here? No, 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 not here. It was, all, it was all over the phone. They can't do that. They can't. They really. It's old school phone in kind Got of it. radio show tension okay. type thing with those guys. Anyway, my point is, Tim, I asked him about this. I've asked him about this a couple of times. He is himself. He is Tim Heidecker in almost every instance. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. In every universe, it's very strange, but he pulls it off. And if, you're, if you buy it, you buy it. You know this is just a different iteration of Tim. Right. And so is that you say that's who you were thinking of a little yeah, bit? Yeah, definitely. Okay. Yeah, and I think uh, those guys are a huge inspiration for the type of thing I think we can do. And it's not to say that we're, you know, pulling, but it definitely is an inspiration in terms of where to go and how this stuff can land, yeah. how much of you is infused with this other stuff. And I think it's like, I mean, I for me, my favorite type of horror is the stuff that's sinister as opposed to in your face. So, you know, something that looks humanistic, but there's something just slightly off. Well, like the Guillermo del Toro stuff, you know, where this it looks human, but there's there's something wrong just with a part of it is so much scarier. And I think it, that can sort of play into the comedy thing that yeah. something that's almost 100 percent but 2 percent off to me plays much funnier than sort of really in your face, hit you over the head. Well, I don't know about you, but so growing up, I loved uh, I loved SNL, but I loved Seinfeld and I loved the Larry Sanders show. And I loved Gary Shandling generally because Gary would often do this fourth wall stuff where – the Larry Sanders show universe was everyone was sort of playing. I mean, he'd come up with this character, Larry Sanders, but the celebrities that would come on were playing an, uh, an exaggerated version of themselves. Seinfeld, the same thing. Like he's playing himself, but it's a universe. And it's a universe, if you get into the lore, you realize it's all based on Larry David's life. And yeah. then Curb is the same. So all this weird reality stuff is happening where reality is being skewed. The Beaverton. Is set up, and I mean, since certainly since the Daily Show and Weekend Update did this thing where, hey, we're the news, you can trust us, but everything's crazy. Yeah. And the Beaverton's in that world too, where you're set up as a news show, where you're satirizing the news of the day and the politics of the day, but you're also satirizing the media. Right. 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 What does that mean to you exactly? Like, what does it mean to you to be inside of a medium making fun <laughs> of the medium? And the people that represent it. That's weird. It's a weird. It's weird. It's a lot of things going on. I know it is. Yeah. Yeah. I think. Yeah. It's no, that's right. And I think what what works so well about that is it sort of has this umbrella of anything goes, because if everything's being made fun of while you're doing it, (laughs) 
<laughs> then you then almost almost like the material doesn't. There's nothing that needs to be precious because we're making fun of all of it. We're making right. fun of ourselves. Like we're in it too. Miguel Rivas and Emma Hunter. We're a joke. The media is a joke. Politics are a joke. Canada's a joke. What do right. you want to say? So like, w- no holds barred. Like yes. everything's on the table. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I think it's important that we have a place for that in our country with our own people because, like, I remember, what is it now, like six years ago, the, the sort of tragedy apocalypse apocalypse that was Rob Ford. Yeah. This whole thing went down, and the people behind the desk that could make fun of it were Americans. We had no show with no desk to make fun. Like, we had sort yeah. of 7 o'clock, 22 minutes doing a softball, but we didn't have an aggressive late-night show to make fun of our guy. And as tragic as it was, it was this beautiful fodder for jokes that just went into the ether of the U.S. because we didn't have a show right. that had a voice that right. could do that. Right. So... It, we need that, I think. Yeah. And I don't need to be the man for the job, but I happen to be. <laughs> but I'm glad, regardless, that that space exists for that type of content and for that type of, I don't know, self-cajoling. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So you, you start, the, the first season is, is I mean, we're, we're going to talk about the second season in a moment. But the first season, I think, was trial and error for everyone involved. Absolutely. Oh, season one. Yeah, what are we doing? What did you What did you take away from that experience of making season one? Like, what were the major, like, oh. Like, you know, you learn things as you go. Yeah, absolutely. And it's a weird thing when you're learning in public. Yeah. Uh, you know, you're putting a thing out and then realizing something about it once everyone has seen it. Right, right. So were there things about the first season where you were like... Well, I, I needed contacts. I can't see. So I learned that. Oh, were you, um, that's right. You don't wear glasses on this show. No. Turns out I should because I can't see. <laughs> so I couldn't read the teleprompter. Oh. So that was exciting. Okay. Um, I think a big thing was... I don't know if this is too behind the curtain, but... In anything, as I'm sure you know, speaking to performers, there's a huge part of any type of performance, which is notes. You get notes from your director. You get notes after rehearsal. And what's interesting is because we do uh, live tapings, if anybody wants to come, you should come. And um, so you do this performance, and then the director will give you notes in front of 200 people. That's an interesting feeling. What, during the actual taping? Yeah, because we have to get the take. So we'll shoot one, and then oh. the director will say, you know what, Emma, can you um, can you bring it down a little? And uh-huh. I'll go, you know, okay. And it's like, and then I have to do it again oh, in wow. front of everyone. I mean, that's, but that's good. Like, what else is there? It's like life is happening before you. So it's a, that was definitely humbling. I presume, and I get a lot of notes. Yeah, I presume <laughs> you don't have the budget or luxury of a dress rehearsal, right? Uh, no, we do. I'm just that bad. We, I just, uh, yeah. No, we, we definitely have a dress rehearsal. We have a dress rehearsal. But in front of like a crowd? The rehearsal is private, but because there's so much going on with the tech and the yeah. screen and everything's in the truck and music, we have this like, there's a lot of moving parts. And Sheila O'Brien, who is our sort of overall director, is really talented, but she's managing so many things yeah. that sometimes the actual performance on the day gets handled on the day. I see. So, um, do you do table reads and stuff? Yeah, I'm just I'm trying to tell you I'm not that good, okay? That's what I'm saying. And, uh, I don't know it doesn't come across yeah, on the show. I'm I not, think you're not great. Not that good? Nope. Uh, so, <laughs> you know, usually it's just bring it down, Hunter, is sure. the main note. Sure. Can you just relax a little bit? Uh, so, but yeah, so that's uh, that's just an interesting feeling. Right. But I think I'm getting better at it. I just go, yeah, okay. And I feel less precious about myself. I mean, myself. you've done live theater. You must have had some notes. So. Lots of notes, but yeah. usually the notes are in front of the cast after the rehearsal. Oh, the not fact that it's in like, front of people yeah, is Yeah, I'm weird. a big fan. And then, yeah, you know, she was a little big. I didn't like it either. I'm glad they're handling that. I just picture that sort of going on. I'm okay, okay. Um, yeah, and I think uh, I think Miguel and I got more comfortable, too, with our own 
Like we're just getting more comfortable throwing in our own stuff and yeah. working on the fly and all, and all that stuff. Uh, one of my favorite moments of every episode is the going to commercial where M- Miguel will turn to you and say something and you have to react to it. And sometimes it's at the end of the episodes too. <laughs> is that improvised? Yeah, yeah. After the break, we'll meet the nude old man in the locker room who wants to talk politics with you. You know, my balls, I feel like I could shape them into various things. Like that old show, He'll just say, like, you know, I can shape my balls in oh, a weird way. Yeah. And, yeah. Yeah. And for the longest, I didn't, I can't remember that you guys could hear that, but for about <laughs> the first four episodes, I would sort of fill in the blanks of this long story about a rash I had in 97. And I think Real Miguel was sort of like, I really, you know, I'm really over the rash bit. And I was like, I'm not. I got 20 more of these. Uh, I got this really bad rash at camp. He's like, you know, okay, can we wrap it up? Um, Is it a challenge? Are you trying to break each other yeah. up? Yeah. 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 So just in that little commercial. The day is long. Yeah. You know? Yeah. yeah. Just, the way he turns so stoically to you <laughs> and says something insane, I just think is amazing. So, okay. So you learned some things. Is there anything about the new season uh, that we will notice? Are there changes that will be reflected? Well, I won't be pregnant. I was pregnant the whole time and hiding I noticed it. you were shot from yes, the... Yes. Yeah. And nobody knew, so I was running to the bathroom to throw up. So I'm really looking forward to sort of not also having that going on in my You got notes as a pregnant lady in public? Yeah, thank you. Who are these directors? Think- Monsters. They just sound like terrible people. Yeah, my organic talent is constantly being snuffed out everywhere I go. They're dressing down a pregnant woman. Thank you. I can't believe And all believe I want this. is a couple of drinks and to do my job. <laughs> a couple of drinks. You turn into you turn into Beaver and Emma there all of a sudden. Exactly. Yeah. Right. Um, no, what's the most absolutely the most exciting thing about season 2 for real is that we're not pre-shooting. So we're going to rehearse on the Friday, shoot on the Monday, air on the Wednesday. Had you shot most of the first season in a lump kind of thing? Like, oh, yeah. wow. Yeah, Chunk. and so we would sort of add things in as we could on the fly with ADR. I think that's okay to say. And now what we're doing to is... To make it more topical and stuff? Yeah, because yeah. this... But yeah. it, it's very difficult, I think, to get to get the shooting time and to figure out Absolutely. where we were going to land. So it had this evergreen umbrella, which is a little tough. And I think less sort of conducive to the brand than being topical. Yeah. So this year, it will shoot as the That's stories great. unfold, which is such a gift. It's exhilarating, and I, It's yeah. really exhilarating. It's really different. Yeah. Um, and we won't have a laugh track because everybody hated it, and you we You didn't actually you. have a laugh track, did you? There might have been a little bit of a bump up, <laughs> and uh, people on social media, no likey. So, <laughs> well, I watched it, and I just thought, oh, they didn't mic the audience right. That's I'm being honest with you here. I heard because the laughter sounded like it was happening in a different studio. Yeah, because it was so bad. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, I thought everyone would think we were just really, really funny, and turns out they thought we just had a really like 1980s mm. laugh track. Right. So we cleaned that up. Okay. We're topical. You've got a live audience though. There is a live audience. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And yeah. that's a really fun part of it too. Um, and it, I think it's a great night. I think it's fun. I think we try to keep the energy up, and mm-hmm. Miguel and I have a blast. So, And that adds that it's necessary. I think that live audience element is necessary. I think it works in the U.S. with those late-night shows. And even though this isn't necessarily that model, that same energy works really well yeah. for us and what we're going for. So, yeah. Are there particular yeah. uh, Canadian subjects, topics, news items, areas that you didn't get to get to in the first season that you'd like to— try and tweak a little bit uh, in the second season? I'm just curious. I think we were happy for the most part. I think the um, the new situation with the NDP is going to be very exciting. Right, right. I think that the challenge will always be how much or little of Trump. I think that is a difficult thing to navigate because yeah. it's so much of sort of 
international news, but it's not necessarily our news, but it's important. So I don't know. That will be the challenge of how much or little to include or not include. Isn't it a huge challenge for a satire show to satirize this current era? How do you write the joke when the joke's already written? The joke is in charge of the world. Absolutely. You can't parody the parody. And it's it's unbelievable what's going on. And I don't know I I don't know how you it's it's the joke is already written. Like, you know, Alec Baldwin is great. It's great, but it's not that much of a stretch from the real from the original guy. So it's it's difficult and and it's um it's dark and you know it's a, it's definitely an exciting time in comedy but i agree that i don't know how you, I mean, where's the joke most of the time? I used the to, Puerto Rico stuff. I mean, where's the joke? Yeah. The joke is written. It's done. How do you satirize that? But uh, we'll I, figure it out. I was saying this to my wife the other day. I used to watch The Daily Show and think, ha-ha, that problem was solved. John got them, and everyone's going to see that, and it's going to be done. There's no way that could continue. And then you realize that's a bubble. Yeah. So many different bubbles going on, and uh, it's fascinating. And I think that that's one of the... Real interesting aspects of the Beaverton, because I don't know about the Canadian bubble as much as I thought. Right. I kind of immerse myself in American bubbles yeah. <laughs> and social media bubbles. So it's it's fascinating. Well, I wish you the the best of luck with this show. I, I, I hope it goes well. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. This was a pleasure. Absolutely. And is there I know I, I got Luke to, to, to plug the Beaverton site and so I think people know where that where to go. What about you? Where can people learn more about you? Well, the real you. Yeah, I mean, I'm not huge on social media because of two reasons. Um, my private life is my private life. Also, bad at it. Yeah, don't know where to find things. Not sure how to. I, I'm pretty sure I sent a very long family sort of series of photos to this girl I barely know yesterday <laughs> night, and I'm I'm pretty embarrassed about it. So I have to be careful. But I do have Twitter, and yeah. occasionally will tweet, and it's at Emma Huntress. Um, is my handle, okay. which is a little obnoxious, but I made it back in the day, so just know that I know. Um, yeah. <laughs> At Emma Huntress and the rest, Beaverton. Beaverton. The Beaverton stuff. Yeah. Emma, tremendous pleasure. Thank you so much for being on this show. Thank you so much for having me. For decades, New Brunswick has been owned by one family of forestry billionaires, the Irvings. But as the younger generation inherits the estate, the Irvings are planning to pull up roots and put the old family province on the market. (laughs) According to one Irving cousin, we've made a lot of good memories here, from owning all the newspapers to leaking crude oil into the Bay of Fundy. But we've had our eye on some up-and-coming, poorly regulated, resource-heavy neighborhoods like the Congo or whatever they're calling Rhodesia these days. The Irvings have already started to renovate the province by putting a fresh coat of paint on Moncton and evicting the province's 790,000 squatters. But no matter what they do, it's obvious New Brunswick will be bought as a teardown, like when the Weston family bulldozed Ontario and put up a Loblaws. Hi, Miguel. How are you? I'm well. How are you? I'm very well. It's nice to have you on the show. Thank you for having me on the show. I'm glad to be here. I've had some of your colleagues on the show. uh, Oh, no. Yes. Uh, Do you know who I'm referring to? I assume Emma Hunter. That is one. Maybe Luke Gordon Field. Yes, that is the other. You you guessed correctly. That was amazing. That was like. How about that? <laughs> I want to congratulate you on the success of the Beaverton. You must be excited. Thank you very much. Yeah, season two is just starting now, and yeah, it feels really great. 
Now, I want to, we're going to cover a fair amount of ground here. I want to begin simply by asking you how you got embroiled or involved in this whole whole thing with the Beaverton. Can you, I imagine there were auditions and whatnot, but can you tell us the story? Sure, yeah. There was a sort of uh, a super group sketch troupe a couple of years ago that I was a part of called Get Some, which featured, uh, I'm, in a, I'm in another sketch troupe, my long-running sketch troupe, Tony Ho, and with Roger Bainbridge and Adam Niebergall, and all three of us were in it with, you know, big people like Mark Little and Justin Collette, who's now on Broadway doing uh, uh, School of Rock. Oh. And Laura Silovitz, who's on the Beaverton, and others, you know, so it was kind of a super group, and we were doing these regular shows at the Bad Dog Theater and other places, and um, I guess we just kind of all caught the attention of some casting directors, and we were all kind of known sketch and comedy entities anyways, but this was a real hyper-focused version of it, and then that's sort of when the Beaverton auditions were going on, and based on some of the sketches I think I had done in that show, they called me in for the Beaverton, they called in a lot of people, but... Uh, they called me in and we kind of went like, you know, six auditions deep as they were doing chemistry tests and everything. It was over a month long process and just kind of endeared myself to them, I guess, with my stiff, stiff delivery. <laughs> <laughs> the chemistry test is fascinating. It sounds like something that would be done in elementary school, but they want to make sure that <laughs> you and your co-anchor are aligned. It's That's like, right. Yeah. And then yeah. so you would have the when they get it down to a final group of people and they're trying to build a duo, you kind of go in and uh, read several bits with, with different people, different, uh, in this case for me, I was going across from actresses. But they also had, uh, yeah, they had other people still in the running. And me and Emma just kind of really clicked, I think, uh, in those auditions. We've known each other for like 10 years, but we've never actually done anything together. But we had a lot of mutual respect, and we're friends, and I, I don't know, I guess it just kind of read really well. <laughs> yeah, can you expand upon that chemistry? I, Emma and I had a what I would I would uh, classify as a delightful conversation and uh, Oh, goodness. Yeah, it was it was lovely. She seems great. Uh talk about that chemistry. How does that manifest itself? Because I was telling her one of my favorite moments of every Beaverton episode is when you cut to a break and you seem to lead the way in saying something preposterous i think to break her up uh, make her laugh is that is that the goal there i would say that that's a pretty accurate description yeah they there's a there's a dangerous thing in any kind of script if if i'm involved where it's like and then just chatter here for a little bit or do banter but there's nothing to to say i'm always, i always just try and see how far i can go and take it and uh yeah emma's emma's a pretty rock solid performer but I think I know how to wiggle my way in there and, and make her laugh. Yeah. Being very silly. And it's sort of something you establish with the live studio audience as well. They kind of know, they pick up really quickly that those moments are improvised and, and extra goofy. And so people are kind of waiting for it. So there's this like bizarre energy in the, in the studio. <laughs> uh, and it kind of just makes a, the more absurd thing you can say and get away with the more likely Everyone's gonna laugh. Yeah, yeah. No, it's it's a. I, I look forward to those. I look forward to that moment because I, I just I'm, you just never know what you're gonna say, and uh, and you always know it's gonna fade out. So you can really just like introduce an idea and put for, for in my case put Emma on the spot to give like one response that might even be faded out before the sentence is finished. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, is it is it a? I, I presume it's a fun set 
we don't see with the end result of that fade out. Have you ever, uh, either of you, ended up in hysterics because of that? Those moments. Oh yeah, I, I, more times than we can count. You know, luckily it's it's live to tape, but we can still do extra takes. So we try and hold on as long as we can. But the truth is, we break all the time. Yeah, and, and <laughs> in, that in those tinier moments. And those tinier moments are still born of chemistry, right? I mean, if you go for something oh, yeah. silly and and your your colleague doesn't respond. Uh, or, or doesn't find it funny. I mean, that's chemistry, that's, or, or lack of chemistry, or what have you. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, you know, sometimes that, that just flips it back on you and makes you look like an idiot, which is also fine. <laughs> I don't mind looking like an idiot. Uh, yeah, so our, our chemistry, I think, is really uh, coalesced into something nice. Just we started doing tech rehearsals for season one, which debuts on Wednesday. Season two. Uh, season two. Season two. Season two debuts on Wednesday, November 1st. Yeah. And we're taping it on Monday. And so we've been doing all the tech rehearsals and it just feels so easy to like get back into the rhythm of it. We really have established a, like a classic straight man, silly man thing. And she needles me pretty good in the script. Uh, <laughs> and it's, it's just so much fun. <laughs> so you're, you're, there's a couple of things you said there. One, the production schedule for the season two is is much different than season one. I understand much that, different. Yeah, yeah. You're you're taping episodes in a more uh, topical, fresh way. Is that fair to say? That's the idea. Yeah, we're going to tape uh, on Mondays and air on Wednesdays. So last year we block shot most of the episodes in advance of the season airing, mm -hmm. um, which provided its own kind of challenges. You know, to sort of fill it up with material that would, you know, stand the, uh, the test of time between shooting it and airing it. Evergreen, now, evergreen content it's called. Yeah. Yeah. Evergreen content. It will always be good. Yeah. But the, the nature of this show and I think the nature of the Beaverton with the, with the reputation they've established online is that, you know, something happens, there's going to be a, a sharp article about it within a couple hours is the idea. Yeah. And so translating that vibe to TV, I think is what, everyone involved always wanted and it, it just makes a lot more sense and we're all super excited uh, at the idea of commenting on what's actually going on you know within that excitement is there any fear is there because you're changing the the production schedule and you've got a that's a tight turnaround right to have a show ready for wednesday is there any fear there yeah i think that <laughs> it's there, there's still this fear in my mind of the 48 hours in between monday and wednesday airing but yeah. uh because, you know, Trump can change the narrative in, in the zeitgeist of the news, like with one tweet and, and however long it takes to tweet. Yeah. So there, there is still that immediacy of the news. But I think it's mostly excitement because it, there was a, a lack of opportunity maybe last year for, for the writers and us to sort of attack something that just happened. And we got really lucky a few times being ahead of the curve on certain topics like we shot – uh, a what if Trump won and a what if Hillary won last year. Mm -hmm. And I think that really played well for the first episode. And we had a fanciful kind of bit about Russian hacking that ended up airing the week that that story really broke. And so there's like a couple happy accidents there. But this year feels like, oh, we can really attack the ideas that we want to attack in a timely fashion. Right. So I think it's like a thrill for everybody. And, and certainly the writers are primed to uh, get at it. Right. Now, you, you talked about your sketch background. You talked about your chemistry with uh, Emma there. When I was uh, talking yeah. to, talking with Emma, she uh, mentioned that her background is actually sort of dramatic, theatrical 
acting. Right. I'm curious, what got you into comedy and, and acting and performance? Uh, can we go back in time a little bit and, and figure Let's out? Let's go back in time. <laughs> figure, out, figure out where you came from exactly. Yeah. Uh, similarly uh, to Emma, I went to theater school as well. I went to U of T and Sheridan College in Mississauga and studied and studied dramatic acting as well. Uh, I kind of always thought that that would be more of the path I would take, that I would be a, a classic trained actor. Sure. But um, sure. in, in Toronto and in Canada, and I think everywhere, you find out that uh, getting on stage in comedy is really easy. There, you know, you're playing small rooms and stuff, but in Toronto, for instance, we quickly found out that you could get on stage every single night if you want to. Oh, right. You could get in front of people and do a variety of different types of performances. There's just so many stages and so many different random shows going on. And, you know, being a dramatic actor meant sitting around months at a time waiting for certain gigs. So my brother, Freddie, uh, Freddie Rivas, who I still do comedy with, he had more of an aim on being a comedian directly, like right, uh, you know, as soon as he finished school. And he just kind of pulled me into it a little bit, I think. And then I was, you know, you get quickly addicted to the idea of people judging you on stage with immediacy <laughs> rather than waiting for a chance for someone to say, okay, now you can do it. Yeah. We just got into this DIY situation of doing shows whenever and however we wanted. So then that quickly became, you know, for a while it took me, uh, I wasn't sure I was a comedian or that I should call myself a comedian. And then, you know, you're years and years deep and you're like, oh, I guess I'm a comedian. <laughs> did you did you have a particular I mean, it sounds like Freddie roped you into the world of comedy. But did you have particular uh, heroes or people you were inspired by as a either a dramatic actor or as you got into comedy? Yeah, I mean, looking back, it was always comedy. I was always obsessed with comedy. Um, you know, we my mom let us watch Saturday Night Live very early. So we were we were early uh addicts of that show and particularly the will ferrell era was one where that we were we were pretty much you know that's the only thing we talked about and watched and also mr show is for sure uh, a huge thing for me yeah i discovered it a bit later than everyone else but i dove right in deep and it quickly became my favorite thing ever and also kids in the hall was something that i watched as a kid and barely understood and then when i got older i thought it was the greatest still think it's the greatest thing um, so, you know, a lot of classic sketch heroes and stuff, but someone else I think who I always talk about that, uh, drives a lot of comedy that I do is Chris Morris, who, uh, is a, a British comedian yeah. who has a real darker tint and darker outlook on everything. Um, and he's also has like a real satirical brain. And I think that sort of informed a lot more of the, the comedy I do as I got older. Now you mentioned a few uh, entities there, and I I want to because I'm more f- the most familiar with Mr. Show and sure. and uh, what was the other thing you, you mentioned SNL you mentioned Mr. Show there was something Kid, else Kids in the Hall Kids in the Hall all of those yeah. things have an intensity to them in the performance yeah. it's not uh, for the most part it's not slapstick there's some real heavy stuff going on intense dramatic stuff particularly Kids in the Hall mm-hmm. and Mr. Show. So yeah. did you see that as a as a middle ground between your two interests? Yeah, I think that's that's sort of being a serious actor or, you know, I feel silly saying that, but <laughs> having a serious uh, acting training background and the ability to really commit to parts, I sort of 
globbed onto people like Bob Odenkirk and Phil Hartman's style of performance where they use sort of very serious acting to undercut situations and get comedy out of that rather than enormous broad performances, which I obviously loved. But for me, I just saw a window into performance there. Oh, I can, if I can take people on more of a serious thing where they like believe what I'm doing, then being really silly and stupid at the end for the purpose of comedy kind of, kind of becomes easy. Yeah. Yeah, 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 totally. Yeah. I can, I can see that now. You have seen, we've all seen the, the success of the Beaverton in Canada uh, from the website to the TV show. Did yeah. you feel like it was filling some kind of void in Canada? We, we are inundated with these kind of news-oriented satire yeah. shows where it's not simply the news of the day and the politics of the day that's sort of being uh, scrutinized. It's actually the medium itself. It's the media itself and i yeah. think that's why so many of the shows try to take over that space you know with a desk and the chair and an anchor person yeah yeah uh, did, and i mean canada's had its fair share of those kinds of shows as well but absolutely did you think that the beaverton was filling a, a, a particular niche that needed filling yeah i do i think that the fact that it's newer and younger and a little bit more internet savvy than some of the the uh, uh canadian satirical news shows of the past it it's, has an opportunity to speak to a different generation, I think. And uh, something else that I think it really does that Emma and I use as our, our uh, tentpole kind of thing is we're not really ourselves just being like, hey, everybody, welcome to the news. Here's my wild take. We're really using the medium and the performance styles and the, the language style to uh, – uh, Put a commentary on it as well. You know yeah. how you are how you are receiving the news is commented on a lot less. I think in a lot of the satirical news uh, shows of now, it's it's more like stand-ups just kind of ranting in a different format. Yeah, which is which can be great, but I think what the Beaverton is is able to do and what people respond to is sort of taking the medium and uh, shining a light on that. Seeing so when you, you yeah, just sort of. Uh, breaking down the expectations of how you intake the news. Well, this brings up an interesting point because Emma and I had a, a pretty interesting conversation about the fact that she's named after herself. Her, right. her character, your character, you're using your own given names, and that can be... And faces. And you're <laughs> actually using your own faces and, and, for the most part, your own bodies. I know Emma was pregnant there, and they had to kind of do some <laughs> TV magic. Some hair extensions, yeah. Yeah, yeah exactly. But uh, there, that's a fascinating thing to me, too. Emma and I ended up yeah. having this conversation about Tim Heidecker and the fact that Tim Heidecker is always Tim Heidecker, no matter what yeah. universe of his you're entering, whatever character. And it put me in mind of Stephen Colbert, because when the Colbert Report occurred... He was the anomaly to Jon Stewart, and, and now it's everyone. I mean, there's so many different kinds of people putting themselves out there as, like you say, kind of an angry voice. Uh, yeah. but, but Colbert was a caricature. He was Stephen Colbert, but he was really a caricature of Bill O'Reilly and, and those kinds of people. How has it been for you psychologically to know that you're putting yourself out there as yourself, but as a caricature of yourself? How, do, how, do, how, do, how, do, how does that make you feel? Uh, honestly, for me, it feels really comfortable. My main sketch troupe that I do, that I've done comedy with for the past uh, several years and still do outside of the Beaverton is what I mentioned before is called Tony Ho with Roger Bainbridge and Adam Niebergall. Mm -hmm. And we sort of took that approach really early on of not really having character names. <laughs> uh, 
every sketch would be Miguel, Roger, and Adam. Right. Uh, just in different scenarios. And I always found that it's like a, a great way to familiarize yourself with the audience. But you're still wearing that mask. You're still kind of clearly performing. And Tim Heidecker's like the, the you know, a big successful example of that too. Um, for me, it's been kind of fun because I think people who who don't know me through the Beaverton think that I'm a certain way, <laughs> and uh, when I'm I'm different, uh, inevitably, it's sort of this opportunity to surprise people in performance and stuff. So. Honestly, for me, I feel like it's been sort of a, a fun boost and a fun sort of game to play. Uh, and it also lets me rant about the news without having to necessarily say, yeah, that's me, you know. <laughs> you and this like... season, there's going to be some more ranty stuff that'll be a little bit closer to me in real life. So right. I'm kind of getting the best of both worlds out here. Lauren Michaels always said to, I forget exactly who said it to, but when he cast, I think it was Amy Poehler, he was like, well, get ready to be famous because you're going to say your name on television every week. Right. And you're like, oh, yeah, I guess it's a great way to sort of build your profile. Yeah, even though she's playing like, characters. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Are you the guy from The Thing? It'll be like, no, you're Miguel from The Beaverton. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, it's true. It's true. It's fascinating. And in terms of the upcoming season of your show and in relation to – you know, well, I've talked to to Luke and Emma about the fact that the first season was completely an experiment. I think uh, no one had, yeah, I think so. You not worked together before. It was all just kind of catch as catch can to see what worked. Having taken all that experience, what is your sense of how things are going to go in the second season? Just in terms of like things you've learned, lessons learned. Uh, uh, obviously, we've talked about the production schedule being different. Yeah. But are there things about the uh, the show that you're looking forward to improving upon personally? Yeah, I think just generally being more comfortable and confident uh, in, in what our role is. Because also, Emma and I were also, it was like, okay, how are we going to be up here? Uh, what are we going to do? Whereas now I feel like we know and we know where we want to take things, not to spoil anything, but we know the sort of uh, adjustments we want to make in terms of how we present ourselves. So to me, it feels like this great opportunity to be a bit more of like an authoritative voice on, on some of the things I'm going to get to say. Yeah. Put myself out there a bit more, even though we're talking about having your, your fake character and name. I feel like there might be a bit more of a blend of the real Miguel and Emma into the show. And I think it's going to go really well. I think it's best for the show. Um, I think the whole production kind of really did a good job of taking what worked last year and uh, putting it into this year, just adjusting what types of sketches we even do, the the darkness of the voice versus how much we want to appeal to literally everyone. Mm -hmm. I think that all the best elements of last year are being sort of synthesized to this year. And it, honestly, it's a bit of a roller coaster because of the production change, but Everyone's feeling like really strapped in and ready to go this year, I think, as opposed to unsure of what the voice should be, you know? Yeah. You and I have talked about the dynamic between you and Emma on screen, and she and I talked mm -hmm. about it too. Uh, the first season, clearly you were the straight man and she was off. She just seemed a mm -hmm. little, just a little, a little off. Party it's, animal. Yeah. yeah. Some, well, something was up. I, I didn't necessarily see, I don't think uh, Emma and I shared the same point of view, uh, whereas <laughs> I could relate to you in terms of trying to make sense of a, a lot of uh, nonsense. Uh, is that yeah. going to change as much? Uh, is that dynamic going to shift a little bit? Are you going to seem a little more odd? I think I think, uh, I think, think we tried to inject a little bit of oddness into tiny moments last year, but this year 
we'll probably lean into it a bit harder. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, the the classic setup of of, of straight man and silly uh, silly woman kind of works really well for us, and I think we're going to try and expand that. But the but now that it's kind of established, it's really easy to flip it on its head in various episodes and and bits. Yeah. And uh, yeah, just even in this first episode, we have a a version of that. Whenever Laura Silovitz, who's the financial correspondent on the show, is on, her and Emma sort of team up against me, and it very quickly puts me into the, the negative light. <laughs> right. <laughs> everybody, everybody seems to enjoy that. Oh, okay. So we got to give the pe- we got to give the people what they want, and <laughs> make make stiff, relatable Miguel into a bit of a weirdo if we can this year. Yeah, I think you got away a little scot free last year. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, we got to find out what's going <laughs> on. Not anymore. Not... Now I'm going to be exposed for who I really am, a dweeb. <laughs> so the show debuts November 1st. It's on the Comedy Network and CTV. And, That's right. Uh, and people can find out about it online uh, by, by Googling the Beaverton and looking up the website and all that stuff. What about you? Absolutely. What about you personally? Do you have work uh, to, to talk about beyond the Beaverton? And, and within that, is there other places people can follow you and, and like you and all those sorts of things? Yeah, you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram uh, at Mig Rivas, uh, M-I-G-R-I-V-A-S. Mm-hmm. I uh, talk a lot about basketball, so strap in for that. Um, I, li- I like basketball. I like to talk about basketball and, and wear basketball team oh, shirts. Oh, you, sh- you shouldn't have given me an opening because now I'm just going to just talk your ear off and you're going to regret <laughs> ever having told me that. We don't have time. We're um, out of time. We're, we're running out of time. So I'm just, I'd like to wrap this up, actually. Uh, no, I, I, I'm happy no, to talk No, the thing about you. the Raptors is um, – no, you should, you should check out uh, – anyone who's interested can check out my sketch troupe, Tony Ho. We do a lot of shorts – uh, so you can go to our website, TonyHo.ca. That's sort of my passion project outside of the Beaverton. And we got some big things brewing that I can't really talk about, but I think that will people will be interested in. Great. And uh, also, if you're in the Toronto area, you should check out Rap Battles, which is the show I do with my brother, Freddie, which we've been doing for like nine years. And we do it once a month at Comedy Bar, including tonight, actually. Uh, as we're speaking, as we're speaking, as we're, it's the, as we're speaking. It's oh no, you'll miss this That's one. That's right. We'll miss it. We'll miss it. It's uh, yeah, yeah. But still, well, the good news for you is that it's back every month. <laughs> uh, I highly recommend it. It's sort of it's sort of uh, a pretty loose and fun show that features the best people in Toronto and Canada coming and doing character raps. Yeah. So it uh, and it's Fred, a really Freddy's, great show. Freddie's brilliant. Freddie's been on this show a couple times, I think, and uh, I believe that's correct. Yeah. And and he's a uh, one of the funniest people I know, and uh, yeah, he's. Uh, I still say he's the funniest guy I know. He's the person <laughs> who can make me laugh the easiest. Yeah, he's such a weirdo. Uh, <laughs> Is he your younger brother? He's yeah. I'm, I'm, he's fourteen months younger than me, so we're about as close as you can get. Wow. Okay. Wow. Your parents are yeah. e- eager to keep going there. It seems. <laughs> if I might get personal a little bit. Yeah. No, that's great. That's good. Okay. So. Uh, me grievous. Don't talk about my parents. <laughs> Sorry, I apologize. Uh, I don't know what came over me. That was very untoward. Uh, Mig Rivas is where to follow you on stuff. Is that what we established? That's right. Yeah, okay. that's right. Well, Miguel, this was a, a tremendous pleasure, and I'm a big fan of the show. So I'm looking forward to the next season. And there's a book coming as well. Uh, yeah, uh, a Beaverton book. Uh, so there's lots going on. I, I'm very happy for you, and I wish you the best of success going forward. Thank you so much. I appreciate the kind words. And yeah, get ready for the Beaverton takeover. That was Luke Gordon Field, Emma Hunter, and Miguel Rivas of the Beaverton on the 361st episode of Creative Control, which is part 
of the Antica Podcast Network and is available on iTunes, Audioboom, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, and Overcast, among many other podcast platforms. If you can't find an episode that you're looking for or you wish to learn more about me or sign up for my regularly scheduled newsletter, please visit vishkana.com. You can like Creative Control on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at vishcreative, or follow me at vishkana. Listen to a radio show version of Creative Control on Wednesdays at noon Eastern Standard Time around the world at CFRU.ca or on an actual radio at 93.3 FM if you're in or near Guelph. Also, please visit patreon.com slash creative control to make a flexible monthly donation to keep this podcast going. Sometimes the podcast doesn't feel like it needs to keep going. I need all the help I can get. Just the moral support, a little bit of money, $1, $2 a month, whatever you can do. That would be great. Patreon.com slash creative control. This episode would not be possible without our sponsors, Pizza Trocadero, whom you can call for pickup or delivery, 519-829-2444. Check them out at trocaderoguelph.ca. They're in Guelph. Don't go ordering pizza from Idaho or something. The Bookshelf, an independently owned bookstore, bar, music venue, and movie theater located at 41 Quebec Street in Guelph. Learn more about them at bookshelf.ca. Planet Bean, freshly roasted, fair trade, certified organic coffee. For more information, visit planetbeancoffee.com. Granddad's Donuts, located at 574 James Street North in Hamilton, Ontario. Amazing donuts. Get yourself a coffee in Guelph, then drive all the way to Hamilton, have some donuts. It'll be great. Granddads.ca for more info, if I didn't say that already. Hey, to have a whole meal's worth of ingredients delivered right to your Canadian home, visit HelloFresh.ca and use the promo code CREATIVE50 for 50% off your first order. And FreshBooks, a cloud accounting software for small business owners. Try it free for 30 days, courtesy of this show. Go to freshbooks.com slash creative control, and in their how did you hear about us section, enter as one word, creative control. That's creative with a K and control with a K. Let me know how it works for you. I'm curious. All right, that's the end of another episode. Thank you for leaving positive reviews and comments uh, on all the podcast platforms. Subscribe to the show. Download episodes of the show. That's the reason we have advertisers and all that kind of thing. So even if you're not going to listen right away, download the thing, stream it, whatever, download it, and and you, you help that way. So that would be great. All right. Thank you so much. I will talk to you soon. Goodbye for now. sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusion Supply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. 
I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.